Ukraine crisis has lingered for almost half a year. There seems to be no end in sight. It's necessary to leave, but where should people go? For example, if I leave and I have no money, I can't live in a train station. People live at schools. We decided to stay. The danger to life is getting bigger every day. And also we were told that we won't have heating. Sometimes we don't have water at all. Our grannies stayed, but we need to leave for our children. My husband, the father of my child, he has been in captivity for 75 days. We do not know what is happening to him at all, how he is there, whether he is alive. It's been said we are lucky to live in one of the longest periods of peace in human history. But not so much for the people we just heard. In a world where a day without Wi-Fi is deemed to be unimaginable, it's indeed surreal to see people endure the agony brought by a lingering military conflict. So how do military conflicts in the 21st century change people? Follow correspondent Li Jianhua to Ukraine and check it out. This is the top story. I'm Sui. So, uh, Jianhua, I know you spent the past four months covering the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So first, uh, tell us about your trips. First, we went to Minsk, the capital city of Belarus. And after that, we went to Brest, all the way to the southwestern part of this country. Mm. It is a border town, we know that. Um, the first two rounds of peace negotiations between Ukraine and Russia were held there, and we went to Belovirskaya Busha. Uh, it was the place where the first two rounds of peace negotiations were held. So after that, we left and we went back to Minsk one more time, and from there we went to Moscow. From Moscow, we started to apply for our trip to the Donbas region. So we stayed there for a probably around a week time. And from there, we went to Donetsk. And Mariupol, it was definitely on top of the agenda for our trip. And we went there twice during our stay. And humanitarian assistance was badly needed back then in April. And after that, we went back to Moscow. And we went to the Donbas region one more time. And then again, we went back to Moscow. And from there, we came back to Beijing around August. Donbas is located in the southeast of Ukraine. Its name is a combination of the words Donetsk and Basin, referring to the coal mining region along the Donetsk River. The large industrial region contains 60 billion tons of coal, making it one of Ukraine's largest coal reserves. The Donbas coal field was discovered in the late 19th century. European powers, including Belgium and Germany, invested more than 800 million gold francs in Donbas at that time. Before the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the city of Donetsk served as the unofficial capital of the region. So let's start with your experience mm -hmm. in Donetsk, which is a city with a population of a million. But mm -hmm. you, you said now the city is almost empty. What's it like when a mega industrial city is empty? Should be busy, right? Be busy, yeah, it's yeah. a big city with a population of around one million. Right. But when we first got there, it was almost empty. The civil war probably continued and lasted around 
eight years, right. starting 2014, you know, between the Kiev national forces and those that seek independence in the Donbas region, especially in Donetsk. And, you know, the great majority of people there, they are Russian speakers. And then despite the Minsk agreements in 2014 and 2015, but low-intensity fighting along the line, uh, contact between Ukrainian government and the Russian-controlled areas continues until 2022. And we know that over the past eight years or, so, or something, um, over 30 ceasefires actually mm-hmm. were observed, but unfortunately, none of them stopped the violence. So um, the first place we checked out was the city centre where around 12 people were killed in early March, I think, including children, civilians, and many people didn't want to venture out. So my question was, uh, when I first got there, where were those people? Right. So I asked my fixer, where are they? So many of them have been mobilised, especially men, They have been mobilized, so you see a lot of, you see more women Mm -hmm. than men in the streets, if there are any people, you know, venturing out, going around in the streets. And also, you could see that some refugees queuing up, uh, not only refugees, but like civilians queuing up um, for SIM cars. When we first got there, actually, we didn't have SIM cards, so we couldn't contact anyone. If I leave my hotel, they would definitely wouldn't be able to um, contact me, I mean, including our work. So I usually would stay in the hotel, and once I leave, would tell them that I would come back to this hotel, and then around what time, I'm going to send you a message that that means I'm back and safe and sound. Yeah, so for the first three days, we didn't get anything, and then it took us probably around three or four days to get SIM cards, you know, the regular stuff that we have to take for granted. Telecommunication was severely affected because the Kiev government, ever since this protest, this their seeking for independence started back in 2014, the Kiev government started to cut off their telecommunication services to the Donbas region. So they had to change um, the server to Phoenix, which is called Phoenix. Mm -hmm. But it was not quite stable and not enough SIM cards, especially when it comes to so many refugees stranded uh, in the Donbas region. They were swarming to the uh, Donetsk city and they have to get SIM cards, new SIM cards, Mm -hmm. so that they can contact their lost relatives or families or their friends. Like you mentioned, there are still people on the streets, Mm -hmm. but daily necessities cannot be guaranteed. Mm -hmm. The city is hardly functioning. How do people go about their lives? Um, Daily necessities actually are limited. Uh, They can't be guaranteed. Not everything can be guaranteed, you know, when it comes to this conflict. Uh, But some big supermarkets in the suburbs of the Donetsk city, some of them were still open back then. So you you have to drive all the way to the big supermarkets for daily necessities, and that's it. Prices were within control, as far as I could tell. Not too expensive. We didn't see big inflation. Public transport still worked back then, but restaurants were closed off. All of, almost all of the restaurants have been closed off. You can see that everything was boarded up because um, there were some bombs thrown into the city, into the city centre. So schools are closed off. I had an interview with someone from um, Donetsk in the countryside. It was not far away from the battlefield, probably around five kilometers away. Can you imagine that? Mm-hmm. Five kilometers away. You can hear cannons and gunfire all the time. Uh, almost at all time, you can even see that, like tank would probably roll around, and just in front of just past the front of your 
like the streets in the countryside. Okay. Um, children hadn't gone to school for months already. The uh, I had an interview with his family. They uh, actually moved multiple times already over mm-hmm. the past eight years. They went to Russia and also some other cities in Ukraine. and But still, they chose to come back because they think that um, even though this conflict was quite severe, especially ever since the special military operation started in mm-hmm. February, um, they think this probably would be the end of it. So they were more tired of it than afraid of this conflict now. Mm-hmm. So now I see their mindset. Yeah, they think this is the like the beginning of the end. So they just try to uh, come back and settle down. Yeah, I like how you phrase it. It's mm. like probably it, this is the beginning of the end. But we know that this special military operation, as Russia calls it, mm. um, is around five months or six months long now. Right. Right. So it is. Um, so probably we didn't know actually. No one knows like how long this conflict will last, and probably Russia. Didn't know back then that they could last so long because uh, on the 24th of February, the special military operation, the day it started, mm-hmm. it was like um, a lightning strike. And so, so everyone thought that it could probably yeah. end really soon. But the thing is, it's been half a year already. Right. I stayed there for four months. Yeah, so <laughs> we don't know. We don't know if there is an ending site, but that still um, people in the Donetsk region in the city, they hope that this this could come to an end. Mm-hmm. It is much better than like this a protracted conflict between the government forces and the uh, uh, Donetsk militia forces. I mean, it has been going on and back and forth, back and forth for eight years already. So yes. probably this could be the end. They, they hope that this could be the end of it, mm-hmm. but we don't know. Mm-hmm. This is the top story. We'll be back. Hey, I'm Fei Fei with the top story. I've been working in the newsroom for about eight years now, and I've come to terms with the fact that there's much more unexplained behind the worlds we put out on air. Limited airtime is one reason, or events are just too complicated. But now with podcasts, we don't have to compromise anymore. The top story allows us to indulge in our curiosity for events that shape our lives and our futures. Just search the top story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen for a personal touch on the big events in China and elsewhere in the world. So from um, Donetsk, mm-hmm. you went to Mariupol. Obviously, mm-hmm. the city drew the most media attention mm-hmm. from March to June. Uh, what was it like when you first entered the city? Like you could feel that it was dark. You could see that a lot of buildings blackened because, like, continued shelling and burning, probably for about a month's time already. We went there in April, mm-hmm. and the uh, city was bombarded and shelled. Starting March, so it was already a month's time.、Um, so you could hear in the background rocket fires, cannons, gunshots at all times. It didn't stop. But the thing is, the refugees, all of the refugees, vanders in the city. They didn't feel like it was a surprise anymore. I think they have got used to it. There were around. Three hundred thousand people stranded there, according to official statement,、okay. when it was there in April,、mm-hmm. and people queued up for humanitarian supplies, food, water, SIM cards, three things:、yeah. food, water, 
SIM cards uh, provided by the United Nations, the Red Cross, and also some probably private owners or something, or some businessmen who would go into Mariupol to provide them with the daily necessities. But some civilians um, thought it was not enough. I had some interview with many of those in Mariupol. Uh, there was a lady who used to be an accountant. Um, she told me that it was not enough, like the uh, humanitarian uh, aid, you know, the supplies, necessities, was given out probably like once, two weeks. It was not enough for her or her family to last like two weeks' time or a month, maybe. Of course I can say one thing to the world. War is horrible, undoubtedly. War leads to hunger and death. It's very hard to talk about it. There is emptiness inside me. So whenever I did an interview, I would ask the interviewee, what was your job before? Some of them were professors, engineers, or financial consultants, or pensioners, um, teachers. It was really hard to believe that they were used to be professors or engineers at all, because after months of shelling, many of them have been reduced to I have to say scavengers. Yeah. And um, civilians were sent to hospitals. You know, this city, uh, it was... Maribupa is a coastal city. Down under, it was the Sea of Azov. Mm-hmm. Um, very famous one, very beautiful before, you know, the conflict started. Mm-hmm. Many civilians were sent to hospital. Uh, there was this very small hospital in the suburbs of Maribupa. I went to the hospital twice, and twice I saw some civilians being sent into the hospital. Um because of shrapnel, bomb shrapnel. And every day I did the interview uh, with someone who was in charge of the hospital. They told me that every day there were around 10 to 12 people, civilians, mm-hmm. I mean, being sent into this hospital. But they didn't have enough like uh, um, facilities to support this anymore. Mm-hmm. And people had to live in bunkers. There are so many districts. They called it like districts like the, the bankers or something, and mm-hmm. which district you live in, they had to. Uh, I visited one of those bankers. It was dark. It was basically the basement. There were around 12 or 20 people who used to live there. But after that, um, probably around one month into this conflict, some of them left the bankers because of humanitarian corridors yeah. or because their houses, fortunately, were not burned down so they could go back or they have their relatives that they can rely on. But if you didn't have anyone that you can trust or you can um, resort to, I mean, the means and sources, and then you have to stay in the bunker. And also, apart from that, stray animals everywhere um, because they were not allowed to take their pets or everything they had. So a lot of stray animals, dogs and cats, and so when we did the interview, some of those dogs would come to us, mm-hmm. you know, probably asking for food. Probably they hoped that we could take them, but it was very difficult. And many of them would come to uh, reporters because if you want to go into Maribupo, you have to put, your, put on your body armors and with a press on it. Mm-hmm. They would know that you are a journalist and they would come to you. Uh, asking for help. Usually, they would think that you probably have a SIM card so that they can call their daughters or relatives mm-hmm. or they would come and complain about this conflict. I think because they have lost contact with anyone, they just hope that if they are filmed, if they are put on TV, um, probably they, if their relatives are able to see them and they would know that they are still alive. How come the humanitarian corridors 
were so difficult to be put into practice. I mean, I remember you talked to uh, UN Under Secretary General mm-hmm. uh, Martin Griffith in June. Most people would think, yeah. if they're not on the ground, they think that it is very easy to put into practice. Right. People can just simply come out of the bunkers and then talk to someone yeah. from the UN. Okay, I'm a refugee. I want to leave this city because this is a war zone.、Mm-hmm. But、uh, it was not that easy for humanitarian corridors to be put into practice. First, you have to make sure that ceasefires are observed strictly by both parties.、Mm-hmm. But multiple times, the ceasefires were violated, and we know that. Minsk agreements back in 2014 and 2015, two of them, they were violated. I mean, 30 over 30 ceasefires、mm-hmm. in eight years, but none of them actually stopped the violence.、Mm-hmm. So how about this one in Mariupol? And both sides, Russia and Ukraine, would accuse each other of violating the ceasefire. They would throw the mud around and then a lot of finger pointing.、Mm-hmm. So some refugees, and also a very important thing is some refugees. Didn't have、uh, the ability, the means to get the information about humanitarian corridors.、Mm-hmm. And I had this interview with someone who lived in the bunker. She said, "I have never heard of humanitarian corridors." Okay. Yeah, it was probably like the third or fourth time、um, that humanitarian corridors were announced in Mariupol already, but、mm-hmm. she didn't get anything. I was surprised. I think you would be surprised too. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so also, it is quite dangerous to travel from one spot to another. In Mariupol, is a big city. So, if you want to leave this city, if you want to escape this war zone,、um, you have to go from your point to a designated location、mm-hmm. and to get on the coach and to leave. But the thing is, it was very difficult because. It is far, and then you can't simply walk there because it's dangerous. There、mm-hmm. could be some snipers hidden in the buildings, or there could be landmines, so they wouldn't be able to catch the bus at all. And also,、um, the Under Secretary General of the United Nations, Martin Griffiths, said、um, he told me that it was difficult even for the UN and the Red Cross to get access to some particular regions of the Donbas region. But of course, now it has been figured out. It's easier than it was. We're still trying to get into the Donbas because, as you know, it's the centre of gravity of the war at the moment, and we haven't been able to access,、uh, indeed, our own staff who remain in the Donbas.、Um, and we need to get、uh, medical supplies, health supplies, med-、um, food supplies in there. So we want to use the Mariupol experience. To get convoys across those lines into the Donbas, that's our priority at the moment. There is another thing that civilians, some civilians, probably were with the armed forces. It was very hard to verify whether they were taken hostage、mm-hmm. or they willingly wanted to stay with those armed forces in the besieged areas or regions because they were probably the relatives or family of the soldiers. Yeah. Or they probably would be afraid of the Russian and Donetsk forces. So it was still, you know, very hard to verify the facts on the ground, even on the ground. Yes. We'll be back. So for those people who actually managed to escape. The, mm-hmm. the war zone, either to Russia-controlled areas or to the west. Do you think most of them will consider coming back one day? What about those who、uh, chose to stay put? Actually, many didn't choose to stay put back in April. They simply didn't know how to leave the place back then. According to official statements, they said just now、um, there were around three hundred thousand 
refugees or stranded in the city. Mm. Many of them didn't、uh, manage to escape or leave the city before the conflict started, before the shelling started in March.、Mm. And some whose houses, fortunately, were not burned or destroyed, they hoped that they could tough it out, but only to find. That they couldn't,、yeah. and then they had to find a way to leave the city. So it was hard to say that if they will come back or not, because the city was not functioning at all.、Mm-hmm. There was no water, no electricity, no telecommunication service, and nothing. So you can't live in the city anymore. So they had to leave the city, or probably go to another region or area. Probably, if they had some family members, relatives living in some other parts of the country、mm-hmm. or outside the country, that they can get help. And that some of them would go to the Russia-controlled areas like the Donetsk city, probably.、Mm-hmm. But some of them would go to Ukraine-controlled areas like Zaporizhia. That depended on whether they support Ukraine、mm-hmm. or they support Russia and Donetsk. We talk about actual battle. How did you feel when you walked through? The battlefield, like you had to be extremely cautious, of course, in the battlefield. So we stayed in basically. We were based in the Donetsk city. Comparatively, it was safer to stay there. And then every day, if you want to go to Mariupol, you have to get up really early and then leave. It took us around probably for a round trip around six hours、mm. to get to Mariupol. It、mm. was supposed to be shorter. But because of this conflict, there were so many checkpoints, probably a dozen, over a dozen checkpoints, all through the way. So、uh, you have to show your credentials all the time to make sure that you can get access to Mariupol.、Mm. And along the road, in the field, there are so many landmines. So it was really dangerous. We have to say to a certain extent. So you, you had to be cautious, vigilant, on alert all the time. And me and my cameraman, and we'd always say that if there is a bomb properly thrown、yeah. our way, and then we need to take cover, and、mm-hmm. then in what way you can take cover, and then you have to be prepared at all times. And、uh, there is another thing I think that is COVID nineteen pandemic, and、mm-hmm. we know it is still quite rampant around the world、mm-hmm. because of these conflicts. Of course, they totally ignored COVID nineteen already.、So、they didn't take any measures, countermeasures, or、yeah. control measures to cut the spread of COVID nineteen. So I think in general, a conflict and COVID nineteen pandemic, it was really difficult for you know for live reporting there. Yeah,、It's、particularly when it comes to traveling. Uh, when so many checkpoints, yeah, yeah. So in the Russian side, you have to because we were journalists and they would have this,、um, you know, a lot of questions being asked, and、mm-hmm. then why you want to be here, and how do you see、yeah. this conflict right now, and then so how、uh, what are you going to do there, and then are you going to Mariupol, are you going to any other places in the whole Donbas region or something? A lot of questions being asked, and after that. Probably around two hours time already,、mm-hmm. and then so、uh, you have to walk through the border control area、mm-hmm. on the Donetsk side. You have to have someone from Donetsk to pick you up from there. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to get access to the city at all.、Okay. So that was how you、uh, go through the border checkpoints, the border control areas. So to be a war correspondent, of course, safety is always on top of the agenda, the、yeah. priority, and how to get access to different locations is still another problem. You should have a fixer who can help you with that. To if you want to go to Mariupol, if you w- want to go to any war zone or the battleground, and the fixer should help you and、uh, to fix stuff and everything. Will you ever feel like 
terrified or afraid of the situation, your personal safety? I mean, you have to be cautious all the time, but are you afraid of this live crossfire? You can hear the cannons, gunfire, uh, rocket launchers all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, like even in Donetsk city, our hotel is around 10 kilometers or 15 kilometers away from the nearest battlegrounds. You can hear that uh, bomb blast all the time. You should be cautious, but in the meantime, you can't be afraid of that. You wouldn't allow yourself to feel that, okay, I really fear what is happening right now. That would probably put you in a very difficult position. So you have to be try to try to relax into it. Yeah. But it, of course, it is very hard to relax into something that is extremely dangerous. It was dangerous. You have to put on your body armor all the yeah. time and you have to trust your team. You have the trust that your fixer can take care of you, like in all the locations. And of course, you should be always, you have to make sure that you are cautious, keep your eye out on all fronts to make sure that you are safe, your crew is safe, and then you can do your reporting properly that way. How do you choose, I mean, your Mm. route traveling from one point to another and avoid uh, accidentally, I mean, enter a life battle. So this is the thing. Um, You have to follow your fixer, quite experienced fixer, because before we arrived, they had been to Mariupol or some other war zones. And they knew, like, which is safe or which area is dangerous, Mm -hmm. which area is comparatively dangerous but not too dangerous mm-hmm. so you have to trust your team so that is how we fix the uh, route and lastly let's talk about Dumbas. Yeah. apparently the the flashpoint the area understandably uh, is sitting in the middle of two uh, spheres of influence how do local people think about this conflict or they may be already very psychologically prepared for the worst that really depends actually that depends on who you talk to some of them probably are tired of it and they are tired of moving around because of this uh, conflict so they hope that that this could come to an end, so they are psychologically prepared for whatever comes next. They just hope this could come to an end. Yeah. But some of them actually, they they just feel it is. Uh, they're terrified. We have to say that many of them were mm. terrified. Then I would feel that all of those people walking the streets, um, especially Marbulpul, and then they have lost this um, hope for life in their eyes. You can see that they last alert totally mm. were they prepared psychologically for whatever comes next probably they were probably were not for you when do you think the conflict would come to an end is there even an end in sight to avoid all the, those um, horrible situations we don't know actually it's mm. very hard to to predict when this will come to an end or mm. if there is an end in sight we know that they have been talking with each other like continuously, especially for the first rounds or three rounds of negotiations, actually, um, it went, we have to say that comparatively speaking, compared with now, mm. was better. And then so probably both parties or many uh, from the international community thought that there should be or there could be an ending side, but apparently not. And then this conflict. So the last question is about yourself. I remember mm-hmm. one of my colleagues, uh, he went out for a uh, reporting trip with a medical military ship for half a year. And when he returned, he said that that reporting trip changed him. Mm -hmm. And I can see that's true. The man changed after uh, she uh, returned. So Mm -hmm. how did this uh, reporting ship to the war zone uh, change you? One thing I feel about this reporting trip, that is the peace. 
Yeah, we always talk about peace. We always always talk about diplomatic solutions.、Mm. And you mean politicians and statesmen will always go on record saying that we should、um, resort to、uh, diplomatic negotiations.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So diplomacy is always on the top of the agenda.、Mm-hmm. But I think that that is true. If there is any miscalculation, it could result in this conflict, this live military confrontation, and it is rather difficult for the government, for the people, for everyone, for the world,、mm. because of globalization, and then all the countries are connected. If there is this conflict here and the supply chains are disrupted, and then it could hurt the world's economy, it could hurt everyone's life. Actually,、mm. thank you much, Jianhua. Thank you. Here are some of the latest developments. The Ukrainian parliament has unveiled a draft law to impose new sanctions on Russia. The bill envisions ten new restrictive measures against Russia for the next ten years. Ukraine and Russia have exchanged accusations over a strike on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The plant is one of the largest atomic power complexes in Europe and generates a quarter of Ukraine's electricity. The Biden administration has announced that the United States will provide Ukraine with one billion U.S. dollars of additional security assistance. It will be the largest one-time weapons package since the beginning of the Ukraine crisis. And that's it for today's show. I'm Sui. See you next time. The top story. It fills you in with more details and explanations on the news headlines from reporters. Search the top story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The top story unravels the headlines.